Back in 1978, a young pastor in his late 30s wrote a book entitled Celebration of Discipline. The young pastor is named Richard J. Foster, happens to be my dad. I once heard him say, as a young pastor, after six months, he'd given the congregation everything he'd learned in seminary, had nothing left, and that turned him to the old writers. And in reading the old writers, he began to see this pattern emerge of spiritual practices that seemed to be so indicative of their life with God. And of course, they're all modeled in the life of Jesus. And so working with these practices, teaching people these different ways that we can lay our life before God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It was a small Quaker church in Southern California where he pastored. It was Dallas Willard taught Sunday school. And that was the soup that began to spawn what would become this book, Celebration of Discipline. It's become an important book for many people. I believe it sold over 2 million copies in some 25 different languages. Often hear from pastors or church leaders how important, helpful it's been to them. It's also been important for us at Renovare. In a very real sense, this organization would not have come about had it not been for that book. And so here we are 40 years later. And so to help celebrate that, we have a number of new things. For one, there's a new edition of the book with a couple of very helpful new essays that, uh, that he wrote. We're also doing a 10-city tour of one-night events at different churches around the country. also have two conferences, an academic one and one for pastors, church leaders. Of course, you can find more info about this on our website. But we're also going to direct our podcast and web content towards help celebrating the 40-year anniversary. So each month we'll be working with the theme of a different discipline. And in the podcast, I'll do some teaching, some interviews, and conclude each month with a roundtable discussion with Richard and others. I'll have a chance for you to submit your questions for us to work with. And this month, we're starting with the discipline of submission. But first, let me offer a few thoughts on the disciplines in general. Many of you know much about spiritual disciplines. You've been practicing them, teaching them for years. But the beautiful thing about spiritual practices is that they're not something we master. They're not something that we kind of check off our list and move on. But they have an opportunity for a lifetime of practice, and we get to go deeper and deeper. We don't master them. They master us. Of course, the categories are largely artificial. One discipline leads into the other. The categories serve as good entry points, good spaces for us to begin laying our life down. And I think as we begin this journey together, I want to say a few words on the issue of motivation. That for many people, spiritual practices can turn into a sort of legalism sort of do more for God, to become super spiritual, maybe an obligation that people feel to be a good Christian. And that's not helpful, not helpful at all. Rather, we get to show up, we get to go deeper and deeper. 
I like to think of spiritual practices as something we get to do to actively respond to God's love. We get to be present. We get to show up. These are not 12 new things for us to fail at, 12 new ways to beat ourselves up, rather 12 entry points to go deeper into life with God. That these spiritual practices always take us deeper and deeper. We learn more about ourselves, others, and God. We learn to die, be reborn. Goodness, truth, beauty, joy, always the end result of spiritual practices. So a few years back, I had a little experiment that I turned into a book. And basically what I wanted to do was take these different disciplines and really work with them, like dig in deep and see what I find. And I started with a one-year project, turned into four, and in it I, I learned many different things. And I want to start with a little essay I wrote about my beginning, and I think it's helpful for us as we uh, start this process together. And so this is a piece from the book, The Making of an Ordinary Saint, My Journey from Frustration to Joy with the Spiritual Disciplines. For two days, I cut through 20-mile-an-hour winds on a bicycle for 224 miles across rural Ohio. I can't believe I paid money to endure 20 hours of torture with 3,000 other lunatics. Never again. I won't belabor the details of the night before the ride and the five hours of sleep I had in a police parking lot while lightning and rain raged about my minivan or the frustration of the night after the first day of riding when I tried to sleep on a high school gym floor to the accompaniment of 30 chronic snores, or the mystery of the gym lights surprisingly set ablaze at 5 a.m. What I want to talk about is simply the ride. When I signed up for this adventure, my only expectation was to finish without excruciating pain. It was early spring, and my winter legs were hardly prepared for a ride of this length. The idea that I would have to battle such wind never crossed my mind when I left home for this journey. After only 30 minutes of wrestling my invisible opponent, my unrelenting pride was the only thing that kept me from calling my wife and begging her to come rescue me. I was completely spent. Mother Nature brooded from every direction, wobbling my flimsy cycle back and forth. The prospect of struggling through over a hundred miles of her frigid rage struck me with profound terror. My only hope lay in finding a group to ride with. Drafting is when two or more cyclists ride inches behind each other, creating a sort of wind tunnel. It's exhilarating as it is nerve-wracking, riding just inches from a stranger's tire at 20-plus miles per hour. But some say when you follow closely behind another rider, you can reduce your workload by up to 30%. On a ride like that days, I was sure to encounter a multitude of herds huddled together, pedaling in unison in what is known as a pace line. I usually avoid drafting. I don't care to exchange the scenery of a backcountry ride for a prolonged view of someone's spandex-clad buttocks. Besides, looking for a way to ease my effort seemed counter to the reason I signed up to ride 224 miles. 
However, today was an entirely different proposition. I was now willing to stare at anything to ease the brutality of the elements. When you meet other cyclists wearing skin-tight polyester jerseys with zippers down to the belly button, Velcro shoes and shorts that leave nothing to the imagination, you tend to find a sort of camaraderie that requires no introduction. I found the first pace line I could and joined right in. As I nestled in the funnel, the flock of riders shielded me from the ferociousness of the wind. The warmth and comfort given by these twenty strangers was glorious. Drafting is a perfect metaphor for community. The gift of being carried by others contrasted with the frustration of submitting my will to the leader who is setting the pace. The strong take turns at the front, fighting the tempest for the village. When we move together, we're always affected by the consequences of each other's actions. Like every community, trust is required. If one falls, we all fall. In life and on the bike, I find communities outgrow me and I them. And so I spent the first day in absolute misery, vacillating between the frustration of submitting to the pain of going it alone and the boredom of the pace line. I just wanted to go home. It was 4 p.m. when I spotted the Ohio River on the Kentucky state border and wheeled across that day's finish line at an old high school whose gymnasium would provide our night's lodging. My riding partner for the last two hours informed me that his heart rate monitor estimated he burned 8,000 calories that day. We certainly ate enough food to validate his calculations. After six hours of rest and gorging, I staggered off to bed. Out of the shadows of a barren hallway, a new arrival's raspy voice greeted me. He was stocky and at most four foot ten. His skin was a leathered olive brown, illuminating his Eskimo ancestry. Behind his thick glasses resided a deep soul with a friendly smile. He wore clothing more akin to that of a homeless man than a cyclist. Of the 3,000 people who participated in the day's 112-mile torture, he was among the first to start out and the last to finish. My new friend had apparently been riding for almost 17 hours. According to Jesus' upside-down kingdom language, my new friend was actually first. I was well-versed in the cutting-edge method he employed, as this was the way my father and I used to climb the giant mountains of Colorado, painfully slow. I should have known I was standing in the presence of greatness, yet I almost overlooked what this vanguard would have to teach me. Did the wind die down? I inquired. Not really, but the stars came out. I hardly needed my lights. Were you really riding all day? Yeah, it always takes me a while. I just take my time and enjoy the ride. There's nothing to enjoy today. That wind was awful just makes the ride more interesting. Interesting, I snapped in disbelief. Oh, sure. It just creates new sets of challenges. If you think this was bad, you should have seen the weather a couple years ago. We had wind and rain. It took me even longer. And you came back? Sure. It doesn't have to be bad. Did you see the new foliage in the mountain pass? No, I didn't see anything. That was the worst ride ever. I hated every minute of it. 
He paused, lowered his glasses, looked me over as if I'd just criticized his dog. The wind's okay. You just have to accept that the ride is going to take a little longer. He slowed his words and spoke in a gentle whisper. And God's power is on display, you know. Just submit to it and enjoy yourself. Find the freedom. Enjoy it, I started to smirk. I'll find freedom when I get to go home. He just smiled and asked me where to lay his sleeping bag. I stumbled off to bed. The next day was much of the same. The only changes were my sore legs, worn patients, and wind-burned cheeks. Eventually, the hours and miles passed with a blur of cyclist. It must have been mile 60 when my pace line whizzed past the short-statured man I had met the night before and the clanging of his gadget-outfitted ride. Serious cyclists never attach a horn and cooler to their bikes. In fact, he was probably the only person out there who had a kickstand. I decided to leave the group and join his five-mile-an-hour pace. My six-year-old son could have walked faster. He was smiling like a bewildered madman and clearly happy to see me. Apparently, he'd only slept a couple of hours and left at two in the morning. Eager for company, he informed me of the turtles in the nearby stream bobbling their heads and the hawk above riding the wind. Watch the hawk, brother. The wind is his friend, he shouted through the howling gust. The wind's no friend of mine, I said with a laugh. What a glorious day to be riding. I was thinking about a quote from John Muir. I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown, for in going out, I found I was really going in. Looks like today I'll be going for more than sundown. His laughter was muted by the wind. What? I asked. He just smiled with a knowing that challenged my soul. I looked to the hawk as he practiced his dance, low on the horizon, aiming his head toward the sun. He powerfully thrust his feathered body upward. Soon his labors brought him to an invisible peak. Quickly adjusting his angle, he succumbed to the force of the wind, gently gliding left and right, down and up again. This majestic creature was plain. The man was right. It was beautiful. The hawk's example of effort and grace would soon become my metaphor for the spiritual disciplines. We rode together in silence until I could take no more of his pace. A sign for espresso gave me an out. A cup of joe awaits me ahead, I shouted as I waved goodbye. Goodbye, friend. Goodbye. Our grand companion, the wind, quickly stole his voice. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I find myself tempted to imitate Thomas Jefferson and take scissors to the parts that don't suit me. One of the first passages to hit the blade would be Paul's words to slaves. In his letter to the people of Ephesus, he has the gall to suggest that slaves should serve their masters with respect and fear. I like to think that Jesus started a revolution, that justice was to reign as he ushered in his kingdom on earth. Few evils in our world peril the institution of slavery. I believe God would like to see slavery in all its forms abolished, 
So I want Paul to denounce the social evil of slavery, not affirm it. I want hardcore restitution called out. I've been mining this verse for a couple of years now, and I wonder if Paul's call was really about setting the slaves free after all. I'm starting to think that maybe he was offering a key to internal freedom, the type of freedom that can never be stolen. Do our external circumstances always dictate the level of freedom we feel? Can we find freedom through submission? A few miles down the road, something clicked. My slow, crazy friend's example began to make sense. It was clear that no matter how much I fought on this trip, I was not going to get my own way. Slowing my cadence, I pondered a new solution to my predicament. What if I submitted to this pain? After all, submission is one of the disciplines. What if I welcomed my invisible nemesis? Could giving up be a spiritual practice? Could I find freedom in the misery? Within minutes of mustering a feeble attempt to embrace the wind, I noticed a shift. Unconsciously, I had spent the entire trip tightly clenching my muscles in order to fight the wind, wasting priceless energy. For the next couple of miles, I tried to loosen my body by methodically moving my neck and arms about. Something incredible happened. I suddenly became relaxed, and instead of perceiving the violently rushing air as my enemy, I began to imagine it as the presence of the Holy Spirit engulfing me. I stopped staring at my speedometer and the gradually ticking miles. My pace slowed as I soaked in the dancing wheat fields and bending trees. For the remaining miles that day, I practiced the ancient discipline of submitting, and in her might, the wind sung the song of God's power and love, fierce yet freeing. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but it actually shocked me to see that my spiritual life could be practiced in the midst of that insanely awful trip. I didn't expect to find a way to actively practice a spiritual discipline in the windy, scorched Ohio farmland. For some reason, I was under the illusion that spiritual activities and lessons had to come from books and speakers, and that there were special ways that we practiced the disciplines. But they couldn't come from meeting a strange man riding his bike in rural Ohio, watching birds and giving in to the wind. That day on the bike... The anonymous sage showed me how to find freedom in the wind, but maybe more importantly, he showed me how to practice spiritual disciplines in the midst of life circumstances. And by the time the man who drafted God finally finished his two-day trek, the staff of the bike tour had long since packed up and gone home. He finished with no fanfare, no roaring crowd, not even a volunteer to offer a drink as he pulled into downtown Columbus. Only his loyal friend, the wind, who had shepherded him the entire trip, was there rustling the trash in applause. It seemed as if the discipline of submission had found me. Up until that point, all I had done for this project was begin thinking about practicing the disciplines, and all of a sudden the opportunity presented itself. Not to mention it came as I was doing an activity I normally wouldn't have thought of having any spiritual value. Could I break free from typical methods? Could I practice the disciplines in interesting and unusual ways? 
maybe I could get creative with this project. I like this story. It gives us a good way to start thinking about submission. That in letting go of control, we just might find freedom. That self-denial is the only path to self-fulfillment. That in losing our life, we might find it saved. As you hear these words in Mark 8.35. This is one thing that sets Christianity apart from common spiritual movements of our day different from self-help or new age type of things. Following Jesus isn't about us. It's not about following our dreams, manifesting good things, health and wealth. It's about dying, dying to self, and in such being reborn. It's about taking up our cross, letting go, letting go of the cruel burden of having to have our own way. And this is why I like to start with submission in teaching the disciplines. It's a tough discipline to work with. The term often comes with lots of baggage, but in a sense, all the disciplines are about submission, about letting go, about engaging in the new practices. And some practices we find quite challenging, some stretch us, and often we suffer. But oh, there's great goodness joy and freedom. Abundant life awaits. We all almost always think of submission in negative context, and certainly many of us carry wounds, ways that religious folks have used this word to control and manipulate others. And that's not what this is about. But the mere idea of becoming a Christian is an act of submission, restoration, turning from destructive life, submitting to the way of Jesus. Come follow me. There's something very at home in humans when we learn to submit, submitting to a greater authority, space to be honest, space where I need help. I need you. I need people, I need wisdom, I need guidance. Something very human about that. And so I invite you to join us this month to begin to ask the question, are there ways that God might have for you to practice this discipline this month? Maybe there are everyday, ordinary ways. Maybe ways will find you. Or maybe it's something intentional. Maybe it's something that you've been feeling an invitation to let go of. Well, have fun. See you next week.